And then would you guys go ahead and stand? Uh, I'm going to read out loud if you want to follow along. You're welcome to. Uh, quietly, I'll read over all of us. There's a lot of words, and I don't want you to have to hit all the syllables. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, assuredly you've heard about the administration of grace that was given to me. Uh, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the people and other, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Uh, this is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, as we stand here together as one people some 2,000 years removed from when this was written down by Paul, I pray that your spirit would be active and present, bringing to life these words and working them deep into our hearts. Uh, God, would we have a bigger vision of what the gospel is and a better vision for how you want to use us in your unfolding story. We're here. We're your family. We long to hear from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of the spirit. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, before we dive into breaking down the text, and we'll just be walking through it tonight for a little while, uh, and then giving a few questions, and then having a chance for us to pray over one another, uh, here's where I want to start. Uh, what is your favorite adventure book? So your favorite adventure book. Think of a uh, biography. It could be a biography. It could be fiction, uh, but under the category of adventure. And I know love is an adventure, but don't go with a romance one, right? Like, so thinking through adventure, uh, a story of risk, a story of uh, perseverance through adversity, all those lovely things, uh, and it's a book, right? Not a movie on purpose. I'm making you stretch a little bit for this one. There's lots of good movies, too. But what I invite you to do, go ahead, turn to a few people around you. What is your favorite adventure story? We'll go story because I love you, and some people looked really scared when I said book, not movie. I mean, that was like a look of like real horror. Um, so, what? Written words? Uh, you can listen to books too. Uh, go ahead, turn to a few people. What's your favorite adventure story? Uh, and share that with each other. Bear your souls. Ready? You got like a minute. Go. I know you probably really want to talk through that one. I mean, that's so exciting. Did you guys all have a favorite adventure story? 
I uh, started taking hikes in the middle of the afternoon uh, in the summer. So when it's like 1.15, uh, it was like a perfect time. Nobody else was on the trails. Um, I would take over to South Mountain and spend some time, about an hour walking around, praying uh, and enjoying it. You carry your water. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and so I spent an hour walking around. But this summer when I was walking around, I, I noticed that I had a, a theme to my books. Uh, I, I listened to... Uh, endurance, the, the Sir Ernest Shackleton story, which is a wild, gnarly tale of this dude. It's, these are all true stories, right? He takes a trip down to Antarctica because he wants to explore it. When he's going down there, his boat breaks down. Uh, he can't call an Uber because he's locked in ice in Antarctica. Uh, and so he has to, they get off the ship. All this, if you guys don't know this, I'm not spoiling it. This is history. Um, he gets off the ship. Uh, they have to go across drag their boats across the ice. They kill seals for like a year straight to eat anything. Uh, they float on icebergs across the ocean. They have to leave people on different beaches and then hike across the snowy cover, figuring it all out, pressing on, unreal. It's a great book for the middle of the summer because the whole thing's frozen. They all have frostbite and you listen to their story and it's amazing because as they're putting together their diaries, it says how little people actually even complained. Uh, they were all locked in on this mission wanting to survive and they make it through, uh, which is, it's an unreal tale and it's amazing to listen to. Uh, and then I listened to, uh, it's called The River of Doubt. It was uh, Teddy Roosevelt's trip down the Amazon which was a wild tale of him and his son. After he'd lost the election, uh, he went and he went down the river again. This is a true story and it's history. Uh, we just didn't teach this fun part in my history classes, right? He takes this wild trip via canoe down the river where they're going along, almost losing limbs in life. Uh, some people do lose their lives to different animals. They're like, everything here is trying to kill you. And they press on well beyond what they thought they could ever endure and make it, he makes it at least through the river of doubt. And it's this wild story, again, of his desire to see something accomplished and then persevere through it and what happens at the end of it. Uh, and then I even listened to uh, another book called Life Lived Wild. It's a more recent one by this guy, Rick Ridgway, which told all the accounts of his different hikes and adventures in all the different parts of the world, some leaving people dead on the side of mountains, other with grand views and wonderful adventures. Just this gnarly tale, again, of adventure and life lived in a way that was just unreal. When you hear it, you're like, no way, these are people's real stories. Like, like, no way people just willingly pack up sight unseen with a few wooden canoes to go down the Amazon. Like, they didn't have their GoPro locked in. They didn't have a video crew, right? They had somebody, and they wrote in their journals each and every night, and that's all they were going to do with it. It wasn't for uh, likes on the gram. They were just living life this way. And then as you read it, it's an unreal tale. And as I was reading through Ephesians and this little chunk that we get tonight, which, uh, by the way, in most pastors preaching through Ephesians, they kind of skip over this one because Paul goes on one long uh, tangent. Like if you were following when I was reading, uh, he starts off just saying, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and for the sake of you Gentiles, which in your Bible ears, you're like, all right, now he's about to go in on something. Because he just said, I, Paul... I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is wild because he's actually a prisoner of the Romans. But he's like, yeah, they might have put me in chains, but I'm here for Jesus. And he's the one who has me here for a purpose. It's not the Romans who put me here. So he's in jail. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles, which are people that aren't Jewish by descent. And you're like, he's going to wind up for it. 
And then the next word, uh, you got a dash there because it's like he sees a squirrel in his theological brain. Uh, the Holy Spirit blows him another direction really quickly. And he says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Uh, this, this turning of the scene, the turning of his conversation really has nothing to do with the first part of what he was about to say. Because then if you track along in 3.14, he goes, oh, for this reason I kneel. Again, he just starts back into that thought that he was going to go to with this little excursus, with this little parentheses in the middle that sometimes people just want to skip right over because they're like, man, we got we to gotta make time on our teaching series. And so we'll just chop this little chunk out. Paul's already said most of what he's about to say somewhere else in the book. And so we'll just roll with it. But we're not going to do that. We're going to camp out here for a little while because I think there's a lot of things that directly implicate us that I want us to see. Um, Josh, can you go hit the lights up? We're going to just walk through in our Bibles for a little bit, and it'd be helpful if you guys could actually see your Bibles probably. Is that true? See? It's the little things in life. And I'm going to just walk through this first part. Um, not a ton of stories in it, but just walk through a little bit for us to look at the text. Highlight a few words as you're walking through it to let you see what's happening. Uh, and then we'll come to a few questions and some time of prayer at the end. And so if you've got a Bible, just you can track along with me. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, that, that beautiful part where he wasn't just a prisoner of Christ Jesus, right? He was actually in chains in Rome. He was actually locked up. He was actually in a jail cell. And they knew this, so this was something that caused them concern. So when he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's reminding them that those circumstances hit us, they're still ultimately in the control of Jesus. And he keeps going, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Uh, this word administration seems really weird because when you hear administration, what do you think of? I hear think of school. Like, I think of like school boards and other things that I don't overly enjoy. Like the administration is usually the thing that you're like, man, they're in the way of what I want to do. Uh, this word administration just, it actually means stewardship. So he's saying, you have heard about this responsibility or this stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Like, I was given God's grace, and now I have to steward it in a way that's for your benefit. Uh, it's like if you were to house sit a house, right? So imagine you got one of those jobs that are amazing where you got to go down to the Bahamas, uh, and you house sit a house down there. This is a job. It's a vocation you can do. Uh, you go down to the Bahamas, and you house sit a house on a private island so that... Uh, Everything gets taken care of and the plant's all watered. Um, and so you can go do that. And you can go down there, house sit a house. One of the really important things to remember, though, when you're house sitting a house, be it in the Bahamas uh, or in Mesa, is that you don't own the house, right? You were entrusted with the care of this place. You were not given uh, ownership of it. But you're supposed to act in a way that leads to flourishing of that home. In the same way, what... Paul is saying, he's saying, God's grace was given to me, and now I'm supposed to be a caretaker of it and use it in such a way that it blesses you. And that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Paul's used these words quite a bit, mystery and revelation. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. He, he's saying that there was a time in history where nobody knew this was going to take place. 
And so uh, for him writing a few decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, people will be like, yeah, we, we know Jesus came, he lived, and he died, he rose again, and now the church is here. And at that point, it was only a few decades ago. For us, a few thousand years later, we're like, what's, what's the big deal? Like, that, that's not a surprise to me. I, I knew that he was going to do that. Uh, some of that seeing the end of the movie has made us maybe apathetic towards the stunning nature of what God was actually doing. It took the Holy Spirit revealing it for people to be able to see it. In our minds, we often think, uh, if I just show people enough of the facts, they'll be able to understand it. Paul's saying the gospel isn't like that. The gospel is something that it actually takes the Holy Spirit to reveal it and show it to you. So people just knowing facts isn't the same thing as having the mystery of Christ revealed. And this mystery, so what is the mystery? It's that through the gospel, the good news, the events of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Uh, those two words are really the words that this first part hinges on. The first one being and we'll just throw this in because this really matters. Mystery. This isn't a mystery uh, when the, the Greek words used. It's not one of those words that just means uh, it's like a Scooby-Doo mystery. So if you do enough of your work and you spend enough time figuring out the clues, you'll unmask the guy at the end and you'll figure it all out and you'll find out the monster's just a normal human being that happens to be doing really terrible things. Uh, it's not the kind of mystery that's like a whodunit where if you put together all the clues, uh, if you're a detective, you look at all the data, you figure it all out, you're smart enough, you get inside the mind of the one who's putting it together and then you're able to come to the conclusion and catch them in the act. This idea this mystery idea isn't something that you can have enough effort or you can have enough information or you can have enough clarity on what's taking place to be able to predict what will next take place. This idea of mystery is something that is not knowable unless it's revealed. And so Paul's reminding them again that this grand story of redemption, this beautiful story of what God's up to in the world is only possible only possible to be understood if the Holy Spirit shows you. And so it'd be like if I was to say, I would love you to see what my life was like growing up. And so uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and everybody, when I used to tell people that, I didn't realize that people always thought Newark. Have you guys ever flown into Newark on accident? Like it's a wonderful accident, sorry. Have you ever flown into Newark because it was cheaper than JFK? Um, Whatever the reason was, people don't go into Newark to hang out in Newark. People don't go to the city side of Jersey. Uh, they're like, that's the people who couldn't quite make it to New York. That's who lives in the northern part of New Jersey. Um, and so it's a city. It's kind of one of those areas that's a little bit grimier. There's a lot of uh, pollution like there is in L.A., only without the L.A. part of L.A. Um, and so people tend to not really love that part of the city. And I realized when I said I lived in New Jersey, when I moved out of it, that everybody thought I lived in Newark area. And so they had this idea in their mind of what I grew up in, and I didn't realize this. And so they're like, oh, what was it like living in a city? And I was like, I didn't live in a city at all. Uh, in fact, when I grew up, like, this would be the backyard of where Kaylee Ann and I lived when we lived in New Jersey, uh, which is a really terrible view, isn't it? When I was just back there a few weeks ago, this is when I snapped this photo, uh, looking out over the bay at sunset, 
uh, looking out and seeing that would be just another snapshot of what life was like in our part of New Jersey. Now, before I show you the picture, you have an idea in your brain. You think you might know what it is, but it takes me actually hitting a button up here to reveal what it is like there. And then you're like, oh, now I get it. Or maybe Josh and Angela, who are visited there, would say, oh, I, no, I actually already knew that. I drew a, drove around that place. I know what it looks like, the waterways, because I've been there. But it takes somebody showing you for you to be able to see it. And that's what those two words of mystery are, something that you don't yet know, and you're not going to figure it out just on your own, being revealed, or somebody acting to show you what was going on. And he says, this grand plan of Jesus, this plan that we often take for granted so much, where God has come and he's revealed all these things to us, like, it's incredible. There's so much beauty. There's so much power. There's so much freedom. There's so much life to be had. That Jews and Gentiles, God was making one new humanity. Like that mind-blowing reality for them. They would have never guessed that. Except for the fact that God showed them. Let's keep reading. Uh, he says in verse 7, I became a servant of the gospel, of this gospel, by the gift of God's grace through me, given through me to the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of of Christ, and to make plain to everyone this administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. But his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. If you write in your Bible, that's a verse to underline for sure. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's doing something incredible throughout history. And then he puts the church on his mission. Uh, Chris Wright says that it's not so much that the church has a mission, but that God's mission has a church, that God is doing something in history, and he calls the church to play a role in that. And this idea is this multifaceted, beautiful mosaic, this, what he uses, just the word, the manifold wisdom of God, right? This, this beautiful wisdom of God would be put on display through the way that the church lives together. This is supposed to be a sign that the kingdom of God is actually here because of the way that the church operates in a small way. Have you guys ever been to a restaurant that was, had their soft launch or their soft opening? Have you guys ever been to one? So uh, the church is kind of like the soft launch of God's kingdom coming. And here's what I mean by that. Um, and then we'll get to a real quote that says it much more eloquently. So in a soft launch, uh, you come to a restaurant, and what you often experience is uh, a limited menu, but it's in the physical place that the restaurant's actually going to be. So what you get out of it, you get the same chef, you get the same menu, you get some tastes of flavors, you get uh, usually a smaller pared-down menu, that way they can figure out a few things, and you get some messiness as they work it out. But the promise is that one day the restaurant will be fully opened uh, and it will be able to work through all these small details uh, and then you'll be able to taste a uh, much different experience of the same meal that you had in a sample at the soft opening. 
And so in, a, in the same way the church is called, we have the same ingredients. We have been freed, forgiven, made new, our God's new humanity. We have been made alive in Christ. We are given the spirit now. All that stuff that Paul's already said. And he says when people look in, they're supposed to be like, man, this is going to be an incredible place, an incredible people. If these people are a taste of what's coming in the future, that's the kind of future I want. It's also true that like with a soft launch of a business, you hit some hiccups. And so people's experience with the church often hits some of those hiccups too. And thankfully, Jesus isn't waiting for us to get it right and then he'll return. But at one point, he will return and make it new and we'll be able to enjoy that full, robust experience in a restored creation. He says, right now, the church gets to be that humanity for the sake of the world right now. Uh, Leslie Newbegin says it like this. He says, the church is the bearer to all the nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom, the reign and sovereignty of God. It calls men and women to repent of their false loyalty to other powers, to become believers in the one true sovereignty, and so to become corporately a sign, an instrument, a foretaste of that sovereignty of the one true and living God over all nature, all nations, and all human lives. It is not meant to call men and woman, women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them in, out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Uh, what he's saying very eloquently is that the life of the church is meant to be a sign saying the kingdom of God is here. It's meant to be a foretaste or, or an appetizer saying when you taste life in the community of God, you know what God's going to do one day for all creation. And then it's meant to be an instrument used by the Spirit in some way to actually bring bits of that kingdom into right now. And Paul's saying when we live that way, it's meant to show off this manifold wisdom of God, which is so beautiful. And he keeps going. In him, which is Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Again, this might be a part of the gospel that we take for granted so often. That before or because of Jesus, we have access with freedom and confidence to come before the God who created everything, the one who sustains everything. In a day when deities seem to be so distant, the promise of Jesus who sets up residence in his people is that proximity and power and nearness are here now. And we can't just skip verses like that because those are the things that root us when life hits us with suffering or we get hit with circumstances that really are terrible, or we're disappointed again for the thousandth time because people or God maybe hasn't come through in the way that we thought he would. That he's saying, look at this. There is safety and security and steadfastness and confidence that we come before God and bring that. And then he ends in verse 13. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged I love this word. Uh, some other translations, if you got it, might say disheartened. The, the imagery here is, uh, I ask you therefore not to be, have your heart ripped out. I don't know uh, a better 
illustration maybe of what life together as the church, loving a wounded world alongside wounded sisters and brothers looks like. There's times when it feels like your chest is being ripped out. And he says, don't let that happen to you because I'm suffering. Because what I'm going through is actually for your glory. And Paul has this incredible perspective that says, hey, what I'm going through is so that you guys can experience more of the gospel. I'm not saying we always have to be in that space where that's our perspective, but that's Paul's, and it's something to live into and to long for, that we see even the suffering not at the hands of people, but because of Jesus and a platform to make him known. But I really love that image where it says, like, hey, don't let that be ripped out because you see me suffering. I'm in this, and it's bringing God glory, so it's for your glory as well. Uh, Three summary things that I want to say out of that just for us, and, and see which one maybe you resonate with. A reminder that God's kingdom arrives slower than we like, but it arrives in God's perfect timing. When I was thinking through this chunk of scripture, I was thinking through the fact that if God kept it hidden, uh, if God had yet to reveal it and he was able to, that there were generations of people who lived, who worked, who lived, who died without ever knowing the fullness of the picture that they were living into. And so I think for us, we love to see things wrapped up in a 30-minute sitcom. We'd love to see things in our life wrapped up in maybe a day or two or maybe a week. We really hate the idea of seasons, and we really, really hate the idea of seasons that maybe we don't ever see the end of. And so we have to remember that, that God is playing in his road to redemption the long game. Uh, Bobby Fischer was an incredible uh, chess player. So if you guys have ever seen, there's been different movies made about him or the name he's a chess player. So if you play chess, the story is one that you might like. If you don't play chess, you'll still get the point of it because I am not a chess player and I still understand the story. So Bobby Fischer says that he was playing the long game, not just in when he played chess with other players, which he could think ahead uh, a ton of moves to be a master chess player. You have to be able to think through basically the end of the game. If I do this, then they do this, and then I do this. But Bobby Fischer was on the next level, and what he would do is he actually had moves that he had figured out that he did not play for years because he knew that people were watching how he played chess to figure out how to beat him. And so he would, in stages, reveal different moves that he had already thought up and already played the entire game out in his brain. Uh, he would have had the game played out. And then he would, in time, as time went on in the decades of him playing, he would add in new moves. And so he was interviewed about it, saying, like, did you just discover these? This is incredible. He's like, no, I had them in my mind the whole time. I just wasn't ready to show everybody else them yet. He had this all played out in his brain, what would happen, the scenes, the different pieces, where they would go, knowing that at the right time, he would reveal that so that way he couldn't be defeated. In the same way, God's play in this world is a long road of redemption. Like when you think of, my mind went to, how many people lived and died just in the 400 years when Israel was in Egypt? Right? Like, their whole life, they just got to be slaves. They worshiped God when they could in the cracks of life, but their entire life was lived in slavery. Or the 400 years when God was silent and they lived in exile. Or even the people who lived, Moses, right? Uh, when he killed the guy, uh, remember he went down, he saw the two people fight and the uh, Egyptian dude was beating him, so he killed the Egyptian guy, threw him down in the ground, uh, buried him, and then ran off and hid. Um, and when he hid, he was out in the desert for 40 years. 
a whole season of life that it took for him to learn the lesson that God had for him 40 years. We have a really hard time with four days or four months or four years. And it's going to take us being confident that the God who is unfolding the entire story also holds us securely to help us last through those seasons because there has not been a moment in world history where God did not do the absolute best for his creation. And the same thing is true for us. That the kingdom of God comes slower than we like, but with confidence we need to remember that in the unfolding of the story, it always comes according to God's perfect timing. And we're gonna have to be in that tension. A second thing for us to see, uh, God is doing something beautiful and compelling in the church. When Paul tells this story, I hope there's something that almost wells up inside of you when you realize that our lives stitched together in the small pocket of Mesa, spread out then throughout the globe alongside other sisters and brothers, is part of what he's actually using in his cosmic plan of redemption. Like our lives are pieced together in something so much more greater, so much more beautiful, so much more life-giving, something redemptive, in showing off the mind of God to people looking and longing to see what is God up to? What is God like? What is this community like? We get to be a part of that. Paul says it in a way where he said his role was to declare the riches of Christ. Like he tasted and he experienced God and his story and his salvation in such a way that it compelled him then to live a life for the sake of others. He didn't have to conjure it up or make it up or just push really hard. But when he experienced God's grace, it compelled him to do something with it. To recognize that our moment in world history, God is still using the church to show the powers what he's up to. And we get to play a role in that. There's something beautiful to that. And then we have a role to play in God's unfolding story. In this text, Paul dropped in a few different ways that he, as a follower of Jesus, had a unique role to play in God's story. And here's the deal. None of us are Paul, right? Paul did this uh, literally 2,000 years ago. We're standing on the other side of that some 2,000 years later. But the same thing's true, that whether you're 6 or 65, uh, whether you're a student or you're retired, whether you're working, whether you stay at home, whether you have a job that clears, you know, half a mil, whether you have a job that's barely a minimum wage, God has a unique role for each of us to play in his story that is not defined by those external factors, but are defined by the fact that Christ is in us working out his plan of redemption. Each of us have a role to play in his story. Each of us are caught up in this. Each of us are meant to, whether in our classroom or our boardroom, uh, whether in a kitchen or somewhere else, show off the glory of Jesus and let other people know this is what's going on in the world. This is the true story of the world. This is who Jesus is and what he's up to. And so what uh, Paul's doing there in those three things, showing the kingdom of God comes slowly, but it absolutely is certainly coming in God's time. And there's a beauty to that. He's doing something different and distinct and beautiful in the church. And we get to play a role in that. Uh, that's all the things that he did at that moment in time, right? That actually took place in history at a moment of time. So what 
does that mean for us? How do we take this in and move past just being hearers of the word to being doers also? Because like James says, that's the goal, right? We don't want to be like a person who looks in a mirror and then immediately forgets what they look like. And so I just have three questions for us, and they will all pop up on the last screen. So if you're the person that's trying to write feverishly, they will all be on the last screen in one place. But what I'd love for us to consider is, one, have we lost the wonder and the mystery of Christ? And what, what I mean by that is as time goes on and maybe we follow Jesus, uh, does words like the mystery that has been revealed to me, right? The beauty of things that I could never have seen, that once my eyes and my heart were open and I saw Jesus is actually Savior, he's actually Rescuer, he's actually Messiah, all of world history is wrapped around him as the King, and, and I get to be a part of it. I'm brought in, I'm made part of his family, an heir, and he's given me everything in the Holy Spirit. There's an inheritance coming for me that isn't just some cash someday when a parent dies, but it is a new creation, and that's going to be given to us. And he says the riches of Christ, when we think about Jesus, is it do something inside of us where it wells us up with wonder and worship again? We're like, I can't believe what Jesus is up to in this world, and I can't believe that I get to play a role in that, and I can't believe that he saw fit, though I am the least of all people, to bring me into this. And I think if we're honest, many, if not all of us, could say there's, there's some of that that's been lost on me over the years of disappointment or disillusionment or trying or just length of time living in this world. A second question for us. Do we see ourselves as stewards of his grace and revelation? Do we see ourselves as stewards, uh, like Paul did, of this grace that we've been given in the revelation? And just thinking of this in two ways. What Paul saw was that there were people who were not going to know this good news unless he went out and told them. And so he saw one of his reasons for being in God's world was to go tell other people, good news, Jesus is Messiah. A good news, Jesus is the king. Good news, there is a better way to live under his lordship than outside of it. Good news, world history is unfolding this way, and Jesus is the key to understanding it all. But he also got that it wasn't a matter of just information or knowing facts that had people come into the kingdom of God, but it took them being led alongside, being explained to them over time, walking and talking and living with people in such a way that they could taste and see this good news as well as hear it. And he saw that was the reason that he was where he was. In a similar way, the reason that we're in Gilbert or Mesa is that we've been entrusted with this same grace and revelation. If you're a child of Jesus, this is part of your identity. Yes, you were brought into a family, but that family identity came with responsibilities to steward the gifts that we have received, to steward the grace and extend it to others. And then a third question that, that kind of trickles out of both of those is just thinking through, who is still waiting for the kingdom to be revealed? Like, that's not an esoteric or like philosophical question. Like, like who in your life still needs to receive the gospel? 
what cousin or friend or sibling or child, uh, what coworker, uh, what person and people who are a part of your life. Uh, because like Paul says, this, this story is unfolding a certain direction. And so we're either in Christ or we're outside of that. That matters. That's part of what he's baked into this. Like, like there's life to be had, and we can't forget that we're part of God's means to see other people experience that. And so I want to give us a few minutes, um, and I'm going to have you turn back to those groups that you were in to tell your adventure stories with and answer a slightly uh, more personal question. But if you were to think through this in light of the text we just taught, uh, one of these is there one of these that identifies or resonates a little bit deeper when you hear, have I lost the wonder and the mystery of Christ? I have a simple prayer that goes right underneath that. Just pray for a fresh revelation. Like, like pray over one another, asking if somebody says, hey, this is what I feel. Like I would love to have a fresh revelation of the gospel that fueled afresh my wonder and worship for him. There is nothing shame-filled about saying that. I hope that's something that if I said, who wants to experience fresh wonder and worship at Jesus, that there wouldn't be a hesitation in any of our brains who say we follow Jesus to be like, I don't know if I should put my hand up for that one. Like this is something we should all be leaning into and longing for. Uh, there's a old school uh, evangelist who used to travel around and when he used to say people are like we really want revival we really want revival we really want revival and what he said is he'd tell people he'd be like, all right here's what I want you to do if you want revival here's what I want you to do go home draw a circle on your floor stand in the middle of that and pray to Jesus to convert every person holy to him who's in that circle he's like if you want to see how revival starts it starts that way when we pour our lives out and submit our lives again to Jesus and have a renewed experience with him, and as that spreads throughout a community, that is revival. Or the second question, do we see ourselves as steward of this grace and revelation? If the Spirit kind of pricks you on that, man, like, I need courage and I need clarity because I'm not sure really where I fit into God's story. I'm still trying to figure that out. I would love clarity on what that looks like and courage to follow through. With the third one, who has yet to experience the kingdom of God that needs to uh, pray for boldness and opportunity in that space? So I'm going to have you turn towards each other and give you about five minutes to do this, and then we'll come to the table. But would you maybe identify one of those three, and then somebody else in your crew pray over you for that? Um, if you say, I don't really know, that's okay. You don't have to make one up and just kind of, oh, dear, people are looking at me. But if you've got something in your group, I'll probably cut you off before you get all the way through. Uh, but go ahead and turn towards each other. Which of these is something you'd like to receive prayer for? And then somebody else in your little crew, pray over that person. Uh, the prompts are on the screen. That way it's simple for you to think through. So go ahead, turn back to each other, and I'll bring you back in like five minutes. Jesus, we come before you as one family who have been uh, brought near to you because of Christ. And so we pray for fresh revelation that we would see the good news of the gospel, that we would see you more clearly and that that would compel lives laid down uh, for you and for the sake of others. 
not out of duty or obligation, but out of joy because we want others to experience that same heart transformation, life reorientation, that same life that we've been given in you. We want to see others and we pray that you would stir that up for us. God, would you give my sisters and brothers clarity and courage as they wrestle through where exactly in the story uh, they have a role, uh, what neighborhoods and workplaces that you have for them, what friends they should speak good news to. And we pray for those opportunities to come, God. We believe that you're at work, not just in a small group of people in a side room in Mesa, but in all of the spheres that we live our lives, that you're already at work in other people's lives. And you're calling us to be a voice piece, to give words to what you're stirring up in others. And so would we have those opportunities and the boldness and humility and winsomeness to communicate good news, Jesus reigns. Good news, Jesus saves. Good news, Jesus heals. And Jesus, would we have added to our number uh, those who are being saved because you're a God who is worthy of it all. And so we humbly ask that again as we take up our role in your story as part of your church with confidence and freedom, we ask. In your name, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit, amen.